Well, good morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is John Sherrill. I, I'm another one of the pastors at this church. It's great to be worshiping with you here or potentially online if you're worshiping with us in that way today. It's good to be with you. Uh, we're continuing our, our summer series, uh, taking us through the Ten Commandments. And as I mentioned last week, um, you, might, you might be surprised to, to know that the Bible never refers to the Ten Commandments as the Ten Commandments. The actual Hebrew phrase means the Ten Words. So over the years, that has been uh, taken into Greek as uh, the word decalogue. You know, uh, in Greek, deca means ten, log, logos, words, the Ten Words. So these are the ten words, the ten sayings, the ten teachings from God that Moses received on Mount Sinai long ago. And they really are the foundation of all uh, moral law in the Old Testament and, and then also of the ceremonial and civil law as well. But in addition to that, the Ten Commandments stand uh, in rather unprecedented fashion as the basis of much modern law today. Really the foundation of what we know as our, our own law in this country. In many ways, Jesus' fulfillment of the law calls us to an even higher standard than the Ten Commandments, and Jesus unpacks that, kind of the fullness of the meaning of these words, in his Sermon on the Mount, largely. Uh, you, you You might remember, you know, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, you know, don't harbor anger in your heart. He, he just expands the spiritual reality and implication of these things, or, or more rightly, explains them to us more fully. So this week we're looking at the second word, the second commandment. Uh, if the first commandment is about worshiping Christ alone and turning from the many idols that seek our allegiance, the second commandment is about guarding the way we imagine God and worshiping God in the way he has asked to be worshiped. He desires to be worshiped. So let's listen to the scripture. We're just going to read the second commandment today. So it's just a few verses, four through six in Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I'm going I'm to keep before us, we're going to keep before us in this series uh, the whole gospel first principle, right? As Christians study the Ten Commandments, we're not looking at these as things we must obey to somehow make ourselves right with God. You know, in that sense, Jesus did away with the law because he obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. And we are now in a different position, different relationship with God. If, we're, if our faith is in Christ, if we're trusting what Jesus did for us, uh, we have been justified, made, made right with God. So it's gospel first in all of this. And I, I would argue that even in the original giving of the Ten Commandments, this, this uh, kind of principle applied. Look at what God said before he gave any of the instructions. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Or or translated, hey everybody, remember what I've done for you. Now here's the way to live. It's grace first and, and law second. Ten commandments came after the exodus. 
not before. Law is a response to the freedom that God has given us, a way to maintain the freedom that God has given us in some ways, at least to the degree we can as human beings, not a way to, to gain, to acquire our freedom, right? The Exodus and the cross stand in the Bible as the preeminent images of redemption and salvation, what God has done for us, the way God has acted decisively on our behalf. And it's always been grace first and law second. It was true back then, it's true now. There's no way we can keep the Ten Commandments on our own. They describe a a kind of trajectory of life that leads to human flourishing, right? Question, what path through this world would be marked by the greatest sense of freedom and vitality? Answer, a path that obeys the Ten Commandments. And not simply because they're rules to be obeyed, but because they describe both who God is, how he's structured the world, and how stuff really works in this world. It's very practical in that sense. And at some level, every human being understands this reality. The Apostle Paul mentions this. The requirements of the law are written on their hearts. You know, the, the requirements of this law are written on our hearts. Their conscience is now bearing witness. And it, in, in many ways, our conscience is the internal monitoring system that'll pop up and say, hey, you're doing something wrong and you know you're, you're doing something wrong because there's something that has been written on our hearts. So the 10 words apply to us, again, not as a way to make ourselves right with God, uh, but specifically in the three ways detailed by the reformers. They show us our need of a savior because we look at that and think, man, I goof that up all the time. I just can't do that. They restrain evil in society and they serve as a guide for grateful living based on the freedom and grace we've received. So show us a need for a savior, restrain evil in society, and guide us in grateful living. Gospel first, when we think about the law. Have you ever considered how powerful your imagination is? You know, we all imagine things. Sometimes... Uh, It's an intentional process and you're engaging in an an intentional imagining of something else. Other times you find yourself just kind of maybe daydreaming or the the internal dialogue has come and you find yourself imagining something. You don't really even know how you made it there. In the world of sports performance, uh, researchers have realized the power of your imagination. There was a study done a while ago. Some of you probably know much more about it than me. Uh, with regard to getting better at shooting free throws, where they pitted people, you know, who actually practiced free throws physically against those who simply imagined themselves practicing free throws. I think it was more complex than that, but don't, don't quote me on this. As I recall, the people who physically practiced got way better at free throws. But the people who practiced only in their mind's eye, in their imagination, they imagined themselves shooting free throws. They didn't actually do it. They improved drastically, much more than you ever would have thought possible from just imagining the process of shooting a free throw. The takeaway is that our imagination has tremendous power to change us. When we actively imagine something, that is not a neutral experience in our life and and body and spirit and mind. It shapes us. It forms us. 
And sometimes we can apply that imagining toward other people, not just toward practicing free throws. And that's where it can get a little bit scary, right? Psychologists and marriage counselors will tell us that if we begin to imagine people to be different than they really are, there's going to be trouble. Not just because the image we're holding of them in our minds is starting to break with reality, but because the process of imagining the other person as something we're thinking they are shapes us. Just like thinking about the free throws shaped the person. We become much better at believing the other person is the enemy. I invite you to apply this reality to the political landscape of our country. When we imagine other people in a particular way, it changes us. We become different. Now, take that imagining process and apply it to our relationship with God. That's what the second commandment is about. An inaccurate image of God. Because any image of God that we cling to begins with an imagining of God. It must. There's no other way. A theologian named Miroslav Volf wrote a great book called Free of Charge. And in the introduction, he writes this, there is God and there are images of God. And some people don't see any difference between the two. He goes on to explain that that we often assume that who we imagine God to be and who God truly is are one and the same, and we unwittingly reduce God to our concept of him. This is what the second commandment is about. You know, being on guard about giving our allegiance to an image of God, an imagining of God, that isn't really built on the biblical portrait of him. If we do that, we have created an idol, something other than God to which we're giving our allegiance. And it's really, really important. I would argue that as we kind of survey the landscape of the modern Western church, we could probably cite some examples of where some churches have started to give more allegiance to their image of God than to who the Bible says God really is. And when that happens, stuff gets really weird, really quick. This is massively important. Now, idolatry is such a churchy sounding word. I mean, I I know if, if I would have engaged that when I was back in college, kind of considering faith in Jesus or what this was all about, I would have thought that just is weird. You know, I don't have any little figurines to which I bow. I mean, what, what, are, we, what are we talking about here? This is bizarre. Um, but, you know, big, big picture is that idolatry is much more than a little figurine to which we give our allegiance, right? There are many, many different kinds of idols. And we in the West tend to distance ourselves from this issue because we feel like it, sometimes it can be perceived as an ancient issue and not a current issue. And then we... Uh, kind of lose track of the need to keep guard against these things in our lives. And that gets really dangerous. Obviously, this is a big deal for God because he makes it really the, the center of the first two commandments. 
The first two things he says after leading the Israelites out of slavery. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Taken together, they instruct us to worship the one true God in the way that he's desired to be worshiped. Right? Without any other images of him, but just worshiping God. Now, if the first two commandments deal with our, um, our propensity to lose sight of God, that must say something, right? That this is a very real issue for all of us, a very common problem, maybe even our most common problem, not just for other people, but for you and for me, a real problem for us right here, right now, I would argue. Look again at verse two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Our faith is every bit a corporate endeavor. You know, faith comes in a community, We are a community of faith as a church. But faith is also individual, right? And here, the your, I am the Lord, your God, is the individual, you. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God, John. God wants to be God to you, and to me individually. And this, this law is for us individually, not just God in general, a church idea or spiritual thought, but God the person who loves you, loves me, desires a relationship with us, and is saying, I want to be your God. There's God, and there are images of God, and some people don't see any difference between the two. The Heidelberg Catechism is helpful in in understanding what idolatry really is. Uh, Take a look at question and answer 95. Question, what is idolatry? Answer, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Something in which we place our trust in, in, in place of God or alongside I find that to be the much greater temptation, not so much Jesus or, but Jesus and. Another person describes idolatry in this way. An idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as God. All sorts of things are potential idols depending only on our attitudes and actions toward them. Idolatry may well come in the form of overattachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. Something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of God. The the New Testament unpacks the, the wide variety of idolatry. Look at what Paul writes in Colossians. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. I would argue all of those things are somehow based on idolatry. I mean, we were made for worship. Remember what worship is, ascribing worth to someone or something. We were made to worship, and we will worship. In the heart of every human being, there's a need to be centered on something. 
to ascribe value and worth to something. And, and said Augustine, our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. Because we have a God-shaped void in here until it's filled with God, um, with Jesus. When, when the Apostle Paul was on one of his missionary journeys, he went to Athens. And look at this scripture from that trip. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. God alternatives everywhere, everywhere around. Our inner cities are full of idols because we're restless and we need to center on something and we're looking everywhere for an answer. Outside of Jesus now, there's this struggle. What will my life be based upon? What will I center on? What will I value? Why? Who am I? What am I going to do, right? John Calvin saw this back in his day and he wrote this, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from his mother's womb expert in inventing idols, in inventing God alternatives. It's, a, it's really a battle for our minds and hearts and it's, it's nothing new. I mean, think back to Genesis chapter three, right? The, the fall, Adam and Eve. What, what, what was the serpent trying to do other than create in Adam and Eve's mind an imagining of God that was different than God actually is. Remember, the serpent clawed his way in there and, and through some trickery and through some lies tried to portray God as a power-hungry killjoy. And Adam and Eve bought that image. Right? They held that image and they acted upon it. And and, and like with Adam and Eve, every false image of God, every idol, makes false promises. Remember, Adam and Eve thought they were going to get something good out of that. Maybe we could be like God. And no more cosmic killjoy squelching our fun. Let's just take over. I think one of the dangers of, of being around a church for almost 14 years now, that's crazy to say, isn't it? Is you've heard all my stories. <laughs> but the one in my mind, which you've heard, some, most of you've heard, uh, seminary donut time after chapel, right? I'm in line behind Dr. Tom Bogart, the Old Testament professor. I grab a donut and he elbows me and says, hey, John, that thing's making promises it can't keep. And, and I kind of laughed, and he looked at me, and he goes, like, no, really? <laughs> and he's right. I mean, from a, from a nutritional standpoint, of course, he's right. But there are boatloads of things in this world making promises they cannot keep. Lies. They are lies. They're idols. They're making false promises. So what is it? What is it for you? Because you've got a weak point. I know you do. I do. What is it for you? Is it, a, is it a, that new car, boat, this level tier of house? Uh, is it a person? Money? Possibly fame? Popularity? Power? Sex? Recognition? Need for respect or accomplishment? Could be the drive to be, to be the best in your field? A desire to be a parent? A longing to be married? Looking for that right relationship? Right? And, and remember, we're not saying that any of those things are bad. 
In fact, the, the most uh, insidious idols take something that is very good and that God has created good and tries to take that and whoop, elevate it to number one spot. That would be bad. We need to keep that thing in its proper place under the lordship of Jesus. And then it's good the way God intended it to be good. So when we think we need those things more than God, they compete with our allegiance to the one true God, they become idols, and there's no life there. Or to quote that verse from Jonah again, Jonah 2.8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. I, I prefer a different version that says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Isn't that powerful? You're, you're holding on to a thing making a false promise and we're forfeiting the grace that could be ours in Jesus. There's a God and there are images of God and some people don't see any difference between the two. But there's good news. Look at this promise from the prophet Ezekiel. Then the word of the Lord came to me Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for idols. I mean, this is the heart of God. This is why God sent Jesus. He's in the recapturing hearts business. He wants everybody everywhere back, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've been into, no matter how far we've strayed. God has coming after us in the person of Jesus. So concludes the Apostle John in the concluding line of his first John letter. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Because there's a much better choice. Much, much better. You know, this, this verse is simply a summary of the first and second commandments taken together. Worship the right God in the right way. If anything is pulling you away from Jesus, get rid of it. Because there's a false promise in there somewhere that you're believing. Keep yourselves from idols. It's the first and greatest temptation. And there's, there's no life in an idol, a God alternative. God is the God of life. See, Jesus fulfilled the second commandment not by canceling its importance for us, but by showing us the one true image of God. Right, the second commandment, don't make an image of God it's different than God. Don't let your imagining of God depart from who God really is. And on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we, we are blessed through and through because we now have the accurate image of God. Look at what the scripture says. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God might respond, read the Gospels. See how Jesus responded? That's how God would respond. We have the one true image of God. Said Jesus, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
We don't need any other image of God. It's Jesus. Jesus said this too. Those who believe in me do not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When they look at me, they see the one who sent me. I mean, are we, are we grasping how powerful this is? When we look at Jesus, we are seeing God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In, in, that, in that last verse there, the Son is the image, the Greek word used is icon, E-I-K-O-N, which of course translates into English as icon, I-C-O-N, right, an, an, an image. So what, what that last verse there in, in Colossians 1.15 is saying is that uh, Jesus is the icon of God. So in a world that wants to make images and icons, and we have the one, the perfect image icon of God. See, the second word calls us to look at Jesus when we want to know who God is and what God is like because Jesus is the image of God. We need no other images. So we keep reading the Gospels so that we can continually reform our working image of God to what we actually see in the Bible. Because you gotta keep after that, right? Uh, as a reformed church, you know, we hold one of the principles of the Reformation very highly, reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. Nowhere is that more important than the working image of God in your mind. Is that image always being reformed according to the word of God? Are you submitting that image to God as you read the Bible and asking, how does my imagining of God need to be changed by what I just read here? There's God and there are images of God and some people don't see any difference between the two. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, help us look to you in whatever thoughts we have about you, whatever images of you we're holding in our mind, we, uh, like in the time of offering in the service, we hold those open-handed and we release them to you. And we, we pray, God, that by your spirit, you would fill us with a, a proper, a correct image of who you are based on all we know of Jesus from the Bible. Uh, and God, we thank you because we know, Jesus, that you are the one who loved us so much so as to give your, your own life. God, thank you that you are that kind of God. Help us live in your grace and your love for us and, and stoke a fire in us to proclaim this good news to the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.